Welcome to Access Control, a podcast providing practical security advice for startups, advice from people who've been there. Each episode, we'll interview a leader in their field and learn best practices and practical tips for securing your org. For this episode, I'll be talking to Yaz Kozaraju. Yaz is a Chief Security Officer at Sendbird. Sendbird's mission is to build connections in the digital world, providing APIs and services for chat and products to integrate into applications. Today, we'll deep dive into how teams can build multi-layered security systems to go beyond zero trust, to let teams do their work, but also provide the checks and balances. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, to kick things off, can you just give me a little bit more about your background? Thanks, Ben. I'm excited to be here. Most security practitioners start off with a non-traditional background, but I'll do the opposite. I sort of have a traditional background. I got my master's in cybersecurity from Johns Hopkins. From there, did some consulting with ISEC partners. From that, moved on to Box, where I was, for, I was there for about four years doing AppSec and a bit of everything else. From Box, moved to Twilio, um, built the product security teams there, did a whole bunch of interesting stuff for four, four and a half years. From there, moved on to Sendbird, where I took on the CISO role. And then for people who aren't familiar, um, can you just give a little bit of overview of what Sendbird is? Sendbird provides a conversations platforms for different applications. We allow any app or website or platform to quickly and very easily embed rich, real-time chat voice or video experiences to create connections with users and or between users. So um, if you are like a startup and you're looking to add some sort of real-time communication, Sendbird sort of a place to go to get like the APIs to connect and make that app magic happen. Yes. So we have rich APIs and SDKs. If you're looking for one-on-one communication, support chat, anything that you want to quickly embed into your application, uh, Sendbird would help you do that. And then um, what is your role there at Sembird? I oversee security, compliance, IT, and some aspects of physical security as well. I think you said you came in about a year ago as one of the first sort of security people at Sembird. Can you tell me a bit about what you did within sort of your first like 30, 60, 90 days as the chief security officer? I was the first sort of leader in the space that they hired externally. The first 30 days were purely listening. I was talking to existing people that were doing IT and compliance, talking to other head of departments, the CTO, engineering, infrastructure, and just listening to how things were done, what the pain points were, uh, what we had in place, what their expectations were from a security team, and what the gaps were. After a lot of listening, you kind of get an idea of of what needs to be done and what the company's expecting from that role. After that, it was putting a plan in place together, putting a strategy and a vision for the security team, along with getting started on the resourcing aspect. And that was moving a few folks from other teams into a consolidated security organization, uh, identifying gaps within the capabilities we had, and then starting to hire to fill those. As that progressed uh, between 60 and 90, you start tackling some of the projects that were in your project planning. I usually pick few that are um, low effort and high visibility and high impact and because it also shows that you move the needle, plus it earns you some street cred, which you could then later use to build and do more um, things as you go on. And so you mentioned at Sembird, you oversee security, IT, and compliance. Is there any sort of specific playbook that you go for each one of those sort of key areas? 
We don't really have a playbook. Uh, each company is different. Their needs are different. It's very individualistic in that sense. See what we do today, what we need to do to get the company to where we as a company need to be in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. And is there any specific compliance regimes that you currently have to follow? Yeah, so we are SOC 2, HIPAA, and ISO compliant. And so as you were sort of coming in and sort of building this dedicated security team, can you tell me about some of the challenges you faced and how you overcame them? Sure. So you have the traditional challenges when you build a new program, right? Because that a security team essentially needs other teams to do things that they weren't used to do, like a vulnerability management program where they have to fix bugs, which takes their time away from doing the uh, engineering work that they love doing. So I had the typical challenges as other practitioners have. However, some challenges that were unique to the role I took were because Sendbird has a big presence in the U.S. and in South Korea. So on top of the general challenges, I had a lot of cultural language and time difference barriers, which I had to work through because things are done very differently in South Korea than how they're done in the U.S. So that was a very big learning curve for me to sort of learn how they do things, sort of get onto that level, build relations and sort of build the security program on top of those things. And how big is the presence in South Korea? So interestingly, the company actually started in South Korea. And as they grew, they moved over to the US and then got incorporated here. So a significant part of the engineering teams are still based out of South Korea. I'd say about 65-35 split, 65 being in South Korea. Super interesting. Is there anything as a sort of a company, does that mean that Sembert has more of a sort of a Asian kind of like presence or most your customers in the US? So it's a pretty global presence. So we have customers from all over and even the uh, employees are sort of distributed. We have US, South Korea, some in Singapore, some in India, in the EU as well. That's what I was expecting, but it's a pretty global company. And then just get back to some of the challenges you faced. Do you have any sort of examples of sort of communication between like the different cultures that you've sort of had to overcome? So the language barrier is number one. Not everybody there speaks English. And uh, the interesting thing is they think less of themselves because they don't speak English. And time and again, I have to remind them saying, hey, your English is better than my Korean. And my Korean is like zero. I probably know like three words of it. So the language problem is big. You have three sort of layers, right? They're in different culture, they speak a different language, and they're in different geography. So you're not face-to-face, you don't speak the same language, and you think differently inherently. So it's layer upon layer of complexity, which adds to communication. So I usually travel back and forth uh, once every quarter at least to sort of go there, break bread with people, sit down, talk after office, like build those communication channels in a much stronger way and build relations that then enable my team to do what they need to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely makes sense. And so what are some of the risks that you see specific in the messaging business that you're in? We have a lot of data. We're B2B, but it's also B2B2B or B2B2C, right? Our customers use Sendbird to build chat applications, which their customers use. And their customers could be enterprises or end users. So that's a lot of data that goes into our system. So securing that data is uh, one of the interesting challenges we have. 
And then being an API company, API security is very different than the traditional web security challenges that you get. We do have a web presence, but it's more go in, create an application, get a token. But after that, it's mostly using the SDKs and the APIs to build things up. Even if you take things from a bug bounty perspective, right, majority of the bug bounty hunters are more focused on like web and those sorts of things. But when you say SDK, you have to reverse engineer something, APIs and things like that, the pool of researchers is slightly smaller. So you have those challenges as well. Let's say if I was to integrate like an SDK of Sendbird into my mobile phone app, what sort of the best practices that you recommend to make sure that I don't leak a token that I can like read access to all of my messages? Right. So you get tokens, you get the Sendbird token, which is pretty much will give you access to everything you need to do with our APIs and get messages. One of the main things is not to embed the Sendbird token into your application for people to sort of get. It's more to give the user of the application specific permissions and specific scope tokens so that they can do what they need to do as the end user of your application and not have access to the Sendbird token that's powering your chat and every other uh, user of the application's chat as well. Yeah, so it'll be sort of a server-side token that the mobile phone like authenticates and then there's like a different token to like figure out which ID of which person's talking to which user. Yes. Yeah. Have you seen any sort of interesting security vulnerabilities just with people poking around sort of API keys or? I guess it's kind of interesting because like, I guess a third party might implement Sendbird incorrectly and it may not necessarily be like a Sendbird issue. I think that's a gray area, at least in my head. I feel we shouldn't remove ourselves from the responsibility by saying, hey, you implemented this. It's not on us. I feel it's almost the shared responsibility model of sorts where we work with our customers to make sure they know what the best practices are and what they should and should not be doing. So whenever we make changes, when we find something that, oh, this API is leaking or giving out more data than it should, and we make a change, then we work with our solutions engineering to talk to our customers to see how they're implementing things and work with them to change things on their end to sort of make them more secure. I would say we work very closely with our customers to make sure they use Sendbird the right way. And we work together to keep their customer data safe as well. And so I guess um, in that case, I guess an example would be if I had my server-side app that talks to Sendbird, is accidentally public and I publish my ENV file, do you do anything as far as like scanning GitHub for Sendbird tokens at all? GitHub does inherently scan your tokens. We don't do that today. That's something we will explore in the future. But if we find something that shows that a customer is leaking Sendbird sensitive or private information in any form, and we get that through any channel, we will work with the customer to remediate that. This is sort of segue into my next question around like leaking of customer data. There's a whole area of sort of compliance, the sort of GDPR, there's the California data um, privacy as far as this leaking of customer data has huge implications. How do you think about what we just talked about from a, not a security, but more from a compliance standpoint? I think compliance and security should flow hand in hand. And the way I've thought about compliance has changed and evolved over time. When I was very early in career, compliance was like, oh, these it's these list of checkboxes that you need to go through to get a stamp that says you're SOC 2 compliant or you're ISO compliant for customers to be able to trust you. Fast forward to now, I feel 
compliance and security should work hand in hand. And you take those compliance requirements, see how they fit your business and sort of use those as a baseline to improve your company's security posture. Yeah, I think that's sort of the people's process between like SOC 1 and SOC 2 of having SOC 1 as sort of the rules you create yourself and then follow like standard practice, getting an external auditor. And then even though you do make many of the compliance checks yourself, you're, the auditor comes in like, are you sure you're offboarding every person? Are you sure you're doing this checks and verification? So I think having that like checks and balances is a, a very valuable thing to have. Also, we're talking today um, because Sendbird is a user of Teleport. And I know you've been a long-term open source user. Um, we don't always have Teleport users on the podcast, but it's great to have one. For people who aren't familiar, Teleport is a tool for accessing infrastructure. And just before we go deep into Teleport, I just want to wonder what your thoughts are on just access control and accessing infrastructure in general. There are two things that I go by. One, more than one thing should go wrong for something bad to happen within the company. The second one is to keep things as simple as possible. And both of these do apply to access control as well, multi-layered access control and making it very simple for users to use. Yeah. And so when you have sort of access control systems, like what's your philosophy? I know, like, for example, I worked somewhere and if anyone SSH into a box, they had a script that would like automatically decommission that machine. And it was seen as like a human was on a machine was like tainted that VM and you needed to get rid of it. Uh, do you have any specific philosophies about who can access which machines and what they can do? My philosophy is people in the company should get access to what they need to do their jobs. And it's a security team's job to work with the different teams to make sure that they're given access to what they need in the most secure way possible. Can you just sort of go a bit deeper in about what's how do you view like the most secure way possible what do you look for as far as that definition of the most secure way possible it again depends on what systems they're trying to access i'm not going to get a user to do like 10-step verification to go change their email for hr purposes or something like that right but if you're talking in general I'd say a multi-layered approach is what we look at. And multi-layered doesn't always need the user's touch. It could be device-based authentication and other heuristics, which doesn't need the user to interact with anything. On top of it, you have hardware-based tokens and with the new MacBooks and other laptops coming up with fingerprint as well, that makes uh, MFA a lot more smoother than what it used to be. So I'd say what we try to do is a multi-layered approach and make it easier for people to access it. They may not even know that there are other authentications that happen and authorizations from their laptop, which just happen in the background. Yeah. And so I think when you sort of lock down a system, you also think about, so you have like a single sign-on, but then you might also add like a hardware token as well. And so I think most people they sort of click their Okta, whatever they use, they kind of go in and then there's like a second hardware token. So you sort of have two checks in place. A little more than that. So what we do is we do use Okta. So we have the username, password, and then there's a hardware-based MFA that goes on top of it. And for critical applications that authenticate and authorize through Okta, we have a device-based trust as well. So in theory, you shouldn't be able to access sensitive assets like cloud infra or code from a non-Sendbird IT provision machine. And so that greatly reduces sort of the malware attacks that we've seen exfiltrating kind of cookies and I guess make sure that you can have people's machines up to date and from a device trust posture. 
The malware that extracts session cookies, I don't think this will bypass that because you get a session cookie that's already authenticated and authorized, so you pretty much get that. So that's a very different scenario. For malwares, we have like EDRs and things like that on our devices that will look for signatures from malwares and alert our incident response teams. What we have will protect against like any phishing or any other password stealing attacks where attackers try to get the username and password and then trick the user into doing NMFA either through like SMS-based stuff or like just as a proxy or push fatigue and other techniques that they use. Am I correct saying you're using uh, SSO and hardware tokens, like a YubiKey in your current setup? Yes, so we have either YubiKey or fingerprint. Was this rolled out before you were joined or was this sort of initiative that you rolled out? The IT team did have Okta in place before I came in. After I came in, we made a big push to put as many applications behind Okta as we could. And today, I think we have every application that supports SSO behind Okta. And the YubiKeys were something that we recently rolled out after I came in. Initially, it was username, password, and any second factor. So we slowly changed that. We moved SMS, did Okta push, or YubiKey if you had one, or fingerprint, and then slowly sort of made the transition to hardware tokens. I think that's a good kind of overview rollout. Before this interview, we were sort of chatting. And I think one thing we talked about was around the concept of like zero trust. And I think some of the topics you sort of touched on are in that sort of realm of zero trust. But we also said that the choice and branding of the word zero trust isn't really ideal. Can you sort of explain why you think the definition of zero trust uh, wording isn't ideal? My opinion is you need to trust something. It could be a certificate you have, a password you know, or a hardware token you possess. I feel that's different from when you call zero trust. I feel you need to trust something. Zero trust, the terminology has usually been in place where people want to convey that, hey, being on a network doesn't give you implicit access to something. That I completely agree with, right? Just jumping on the VPN shouldn't automatically give you access to some application behind the VPN. VPN can be a layer, but then you still would want your SSO authentication on it. So again, coming back to zero trust, I feel you need to trust something. So zero trust is not quite the same. You know, I think that sort of goes into the topic for this podcast is around like multi-layered trust. And so let's say in one side, we have like zero trust. It's like you don't trust any entity in your sort of network to you are trusting an individual what other sort of checks and balances do you see in place to provide that multi-layer trust to make sure that sort of that user in that device is sort of doing what they should be? Security as always should be a balance between usability and providing security. So keeping those two in mind, as long as we can implement something that's multi-factor, relatively phishing proof and easy to use where it doesn't bother the user too many times. Like I don't need the user to do a hardware-based MFA every 15 minutes on or on every app that they try to access. So somewhere in between, you have good security practice, which the end users will also love using. And of all of this sort of information that you sort of collect, do you put it to like a SIM solution or do you have like telemetry to figure out, okay, this user's behavior sort of changing and possibly to change the sort of trust, like that sort of those feedback loops? We do send our logs to our SIM and we have alerts based on the logs coming in. 
Also, Okta and other SSO providers do provide some of those capabilities. And one of them is like, hey, if you log in from California, within 15 minutes, you shouldn't be logging in from China. Basic rules like that, and they restrict access or they ask for additional MFA. So we have those capabilities turned on and tested. We also have automations on our end from our SIM solution, where if a malicious login does appear, our workflow notifies the IR team, also sends a Slack DM to the user saying, this is what we noticed. Do you know anything about it? What were you doing? And based on the response that the user gives, uh, the IR response will vary. If they give like an explanation and say, this is what's happening, maybe it's a VPN they connected to or something else, that response is recorded in our ticketing system. If they say, I have no idea, I didn't touch Okta in the last 30 minutes, then that sort of automatically triggers like incident response on our end. So I guess that's quite helpful to you because it also covers your like security and also the compliance because you have a paper record, the checks and balances that it went through a procedure, the person checks or verified. And so it does, I think that's kind of a good example of security and compliance kind of working together, but not being a blocker. With all these sort of like multi-layered systems, are there any other inputs? So you mentioned device trust. Do you use like IP blocks, IP-based blocks at all to access infrastructure from individuals? The device-based checks are more certificate-based that are pushed onto the laptops during provisioning through our MDM solution. So we have integration between our MDM and Okta. So the certificate that's on Okta, that's on the device, plus Okta's Okta Verify, also on the MacBook, as a combination, give out signals that says this device is owned and managed by Sendbird IT infrastructure team. When you're logging in, um, there's communication between the Okta login and these things on the back end, and then that also acts as a layer of authentication or authorization. Yeah. So you're sort of trusting the device and the person combined. And do you support like a range of operating systems or do you just provide like macOS or Windows? We are very heavily macOS. So that makes things very, relatively easier for us. We're in the same place at Teleport. I think most have limited it mostly to like macOS for production systems as well. It makes it very easy to look it down. And then, you know, let's say there's a case in which there's like a break glass scenario, you're on like holiday, or you have access to like a Chromebook and you need to get access to systems. How do you think about like break glass scenarios? So you have all these layers of trust, but sometimes you might need to like break them to sort of fix the problem. How do you sort of approach those scenarios? That was one of the biggest concern from like engineering and other teams when we said, hey, we're going to log these down during X, Y, and Z. Their question was, what if you have an incident? What if we cannot access the said system during an incident and you need something else? Break glass scenario can also be multi-layered. A good friend of mine from back at Twilio, he used to run cloud security, had a good approach for at least the AWS accounts that you that were used as a break glass account. Couple of things we did there, which can be extrapolated to like other break glass accounts for other services too, is one, the email confirmation that comes in when you log into that account or change password. You put it to like a pager duty account or and a group alias so that multiple people know that this break glass account has been accessed. Two, throw away the password because that then needs to go through the password reset. MFA, you either put it in a safe with two people sharing the code. This was back in the day when we'd go into the office, we had a physical safe with an MFA sort of hardware device in the safe. But since you can do that, 
The other option is for the MFA, instead of a QR code, you can break that down into like an actual seed. So you break the seed into multiple pieces, give that to multiple people. So if you, have, if you break it into two pieces, A and B, you can give A to two people and B to two people. So a combination of two people from these four sort of uh, guardians of the seed can then let you get into this break glass account. And when you do get in, it'll trigger email alerts to a larger audience so that the IR team and the infra team and whoever else needs to know knows that this is going on, that somebody has access to break glass account. Yeah, it sounds very familiar to, uh, I guess, like multi-signature wallets in the crypto world, in which you can have multiple parties and having that other verification, which I guess um, this solves the wrench attack, which is famous from XKCD, <laughs> which is an unfortunate attack. I hope no one uh, has that, but you need to compromise multiple people. And so I think we talked a little bit about like security v convenience. What are some of the things that you've put in place, which have been sort of unpopular and sort of people have seen us slowing them down? I think the most unpopular thing we put in place was restricting access to our code on GitHub to company provision laptops. So based on everything we spoke, we put out Octa rules for GitHub to start with saying, you can only access code from company provision laptops and through Octa. People weren't happy there. Some of the complaints were, now I cannot review PRs when I'm on the train on my phone commuting to work. And then as these complaints were coming in, uh, I think around the same time, Okta had their breach. And that sort of helped me make my case of like, look, this is why we are doing this. I don't want our source code to leak. But that was very unpopular. Do you have any engineers? Engineers will always find ways around like any systems. And I know like we've got a bunch of people who like just deploy it. Sometimes it's due to like having old provisioned laptop hardware, you know, it depends on your like refresh cycle. And so by the end of it, they just like fire up like a big virtual machine and they just develop like in the cloud. Do you facilitate or allow any of those sort of like cloud-based workflows? No, not today. And to your point, I've had people who used to do that. When I was talking to somebody, they're like, hey, this is how I bypass your MDM controls. When I heard that, I'm like, there are two train of thoughts going in my head. One was I was absolutely mad at this person. Two, I was like, this is brilliant. You're red teaming my systems and giving me actionable feedback, and I don't have to pay you for this red teaming service. So I think the second approach is what we took. If you can break these things, so can the bad guys. So if you do break it, come work with us. That's been really helpful to work with um, other people in the company who have found ways to bypass this. We just use those and like make our systems better. Yeah, I think it's always good to have that feedback loop. How do you make yourself approachable for people to give you feedback? I'm pretty open. I'm available Slack. I come into the office on the office days. So that's pretty open. I also just go talk to people that I don't know, either here in the U.S. headquarters or when I'm in the Korean office. I make it a point to go introduce myself, tell them what we do, explain why we do certain things, and then just be cautious of the fact that we may be adding inconveniences to people and sort of give them a chance to tell us why they don't like something and work with them to make things better. And as you start doing that, people talk, right? And you're like, oh, I didn't like this. I went and talked to security. They made it better. So that's going from a security team that puts barriers in place and makes people slow to a team that is empathetic, is open to feedback, will acknowledge their mistakes and work with everyone else to do what's right for everyone. Yeah, yeah. no, that's great. And so 
if there is an incident incident like let's say an engineer gets fished you know some cultures can be kind of like embarrassed sort of what's your thoughts on approaching instant response and sort of post-instant analysis within sembird so i think the first thing i'd mention here which is slightly tangential to what you asked is somebody getting fished or getting to an incident is not that employee's fault it's on the security team to make processes and tooling and detections robust and good enough that they will detect and stop phishing in place. So to not blame the employee is sort of point number one, because they fell for a fish. That's not why you were breached. You got breached because you didn't have things in place that would prevent that. And I think your second factor seems almost like fish proof. And so even if someone does click a link in an email or put their password in, it's not going to be become a, an instant. Yeah. My goal is people should be enabled to click links on their email. That's what emails are for. You have links in them, you have information in them that you should be able to access. And then you as a security team need to have things in place, EDRs, phishing protection, MFAs, all of those things to help the user do that in a secure way. Coming back to your question about the IR process, once something happens, hopefully we get an alert from our SIM and source systems, we start our investigation, we bring the relevant parties in, block access, contain the incident, and then sort of start investigating on what went wrong, how deep was it, what we need to do, bring in the relevant parties, depending on what data is in question, and then go from there. Mm -hmm. Just talking about like post-instant analysis, how often do you find that you have all the information that you need and how often do you sort of like use it as sort of a learning mechanism to sort of improve your systems? Every incident that I've been a part of at Sendbird and before has learnings of some nature, right? The learnings could be we could have detected this faster or we could have had something in place to prevent this or we could do documentation better. Like that was a learning from one of the incidents that I was part of. Like we need to do in documentation better. So six months later, when we look back, we know exactly what happened. So irrespective of how robust or how mature your program is, I always think there is room for improvement. And incidents are a good way to pick up these little snippets of improvements that you could do and follow up on them. And so talking of sort of improvements, can you speak to any specific security measures or technologies that you've implemented to uh, sort of protect user data and prevent breaches? Access control, since we're talking about that in this podcast, like access control is a big one. Things like having our infrastructure AWS access go through Okta and make it time bound and device bound and a low privilege user versus a root user, things like that to secrets management being in place, to other sort of detections in the cloud that will alert you when an anomaly happens. So I think it's a combination. I wouldn't necessarily focus on measures that are to protect data because the breach doesn't start at the source of the data, right? It's going to start at the weakest point you have and then go from there and escalate till you get to data. So all of these points that come from the breach point to the data, all of those are something that you would need to secure. Great. So I think we're coming near the end of our time now. I always like to close it out with sort of one practical security or access control tip. Do you have any recommendations for listeners? Since we're talking about access control, let's say make sure you have more than one thing in place that needs to go bad for you to lose data. That could be 
a VPN block in front of your authentication could be hardware-based token or the two-person rule, but always make sure you have two things in place to protect your sensitive data. Awesome. I think that's a great way to close it out. Well, uh, Yash, thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Ben. It is my pleasure to be here. Oh, and uh, do you have anything else you would like to, like Assembled Hiring? Do you have any other sort of pitches or promotions you'd like to just talk about? Sendbird is, is definitely hiring. There are security roles open. There are other roles open. We're definitely growing, and it's an exciting time to be here. So do take a look and see if something interests you. This podcast is brought to you by Teleport. Teleport is the easiest, most secure way to access all your infrastructure. The open-source Teleport access plane consolidates connectivity, authentication, authorization, and auditing into a single platform. By consolidating all aspects of infrastructure access, Teleport reduces attack surface area, cuts operational overhead, easily enforces compliance, and improves engineering productivity. Learn more at goteleport.com or find us on GitHub. github.com slash gravitational forward slash teleport.